Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the 519th show of ROI, and our guest for today is Dr. Reina Stovich. Stovicha, I'm sorry, I mispronounced it already. Um, but I, I warned our guests that that was going to happen. She is the Director of Retirement Security Policy at the Harkin Institute for Public Policy and Citizen Enlightenment. And we're going to be talking about the social safety net. With me today is Brett Menard as our history buff. So to start out with, um, welcome to the show, Raina. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm delighted to be a part of this show. Thank you for inviting me. Well, we're excited to have you. So we're going to start things off. Our first segment is called Farouk Dinarin, and it really is just to give our listeners a little background. So since I think we hear the term, but we don't necessarily know what it means, can you talk to us a little bit about what the social safety net is? Yes, absolutely. So the social safety net refers really to a lot of public programs and policies that we have in place that are designed to support people during different periods in their lifetime when we can describe their situations as being vulnerable, um, in need of financial assistance, possibly in need of any other kind of assistance um, at that period of time in their life in their lives. So um, some um, big social safety net programs include, at the federal level, Social Security, which is uh, a contribution-based retirement savings program, but it is also an insurance program because it insures both against the risk of um, early death um, and also insures people from running out of money, so um, for the risk of longevity um, in, in their old age. Um, it provides benefits to survivors, um, such as children um, and spouses of people who die early um, in their working years. Um, and also it protects uh, women, for example, who are employed either part-time or they have been um, homemakers, um, so it provides a retirement benefit to women after their spouses retire. So that's one big example of a social safety net program. Another big federal one is Medicare, which is the health insurance program for people over 65 and also people with disabilities. Um, there are many other programs um, that also um, address other needs such as food stamps, um, housing vouchers, um, just to name a few. Okay, so when we're talking about because your your specialty is dealing with retirement and the retirement social safety net, and we've been seeing on the uh, on the television um, uh, commercials now talking about you know. Uh, 50% of African Americans can't afford to retire or um you know minorities have 
25, 50, 75, whatever the commercial is, um, less to retire on than uh, the rest of the population. So my, my question is, how does the, the social safety net, um, how is that affected by those things like individual savings and so forth and so on? Um, you know, because I think there are people who, who sort of think, well, you know, you should be saving all the time and it's, it's the individual's responsibility, uh, to do those things. So, so how does this play out if I am, um, disadvantaged either economically or discriminated against or whatever, how does this play out in the retirement? Well, that's actually an amazing question. Um, and it's going to take us probably, um, about, um, three hours to get to the bottom of it. Uh, but I'll try to give it a, a, a quicker answer, right? So I think you're making some really excellent points um, and, and trying to prioritize here what I would like to mention. One is that Social Security really provides a floor. Um, it is one of our most successful public policy programs that has eliminated, almost eliminated, poverty among the elderly. Um, however, it is simply that. It is a floor. So it, the, the sort of the tiered structure of Social Security is that replaces more income at the lower end of the income distribution and less and less as your income is increasing. Now, some people might say, oh, okay, that's interesting. However, at the higher end of the income distribution, actually individuals are living longer. So in terms of what we call lifetime benefits, they actually get more in lifetime benefits because they're collecting Social Security benefits until the end of their lives and then possibly passing on any other benefits to their spouses. So, um, so that's Social Security. It definitely makes sure that people are not absolutely hungry and on the street. However, it is not enough, right? So the question about the disparities um, is that the second tier of the retirement savings um, equation were employer pensions. Um, and unfortunately, access to employer pensions is not equally distributed. Um, so we recently published a brief um, on this, but there is a lot of research in this space. Uh, but the average is basically that about 50% of employees do not participate in an employer retirement savings plan that is designed to supplement the income that they would receive from Social Security. And they do not participate for a variety of reasons. They may not have access, which again is where it is not equally distributed. Um, so small employers, nonprofits, um, small businesses are having a hard time offering this kind of benefit. Um, and then, um, service occupations, um, again, all of these are also correlated with income, so lower income occupations tend to not have the same access to retirement savings plans. Um, so this is sort of one of the mechanisms. It's a big one. And the other one is that if you're a part-time employee, there are a completely different set of rules for your eligibility. Um, you have to wait a longer time to be eligible. Um, Secure 2.0 changed that. Um, and shortened it a little bit, but still the, the gap in terms of eligibility between full-time employees and part-time employees is one thing. Every time you change a job, there is usually a wait period for you to be eligible for this. 
retirement savings plan. So all of these basically accumulate or, or add on to each other um, to create this, this discrepancy. Okay, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, broadcasters come through, even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Reina Sochova, Director of Retirement Security Policy at the Harkin Institute for Public Policy and Citizen Engagement. And we're talking about the social safety net. Our history buff today is Brett Menard. Brett, start us off. Gladly. So, Reda, at the end of the last segment, you talked about uh, the various employer uh, retirement plans that some people participate in. Uh, can you tell us the difference between a defined contribution and a defined benefit plan? Yes, absolutely. Um, so the defined benefit plans were predominant up until the 1980s as the main employer retirement savings plan. And the defined benefit plan features several elements that are very different from the plans that replaced it. So it is calculates a pension based on the person's salary, years of employment, and what they call a benefit factor. And the benefit factor typically is something like 2% or 2.5%. So, for example, um, if you worked um, at a company for um, 20 years and you were paid um, $50,000 using two and a half um, uh, percent benefit, right, you would get $25,000 pension. Um, So that's where the name comes from. It's a defined benefit. That means meeting all of these using all of these factors you can actually calculate your pension payment um when you retire and you know what to expect and typically these pensions were paid as an annuity uh, which means that it was a fixed payment until the end of this person's life now the defined contribution pension plans um, typically, 401k in the private sector, uh, 403b in the nonprofit sector are the major categories, are based on the employer's contribution and the employee's contribution to an individual account that then is invested in the market 
And after 59 years in the house, the employee can access these funds and they can access the funds in any way that they choose. They may purchase an annuity, they may take the money lump sum, they may withdraw um, set amounts of money every year. Um, and so the main difference between the two plans is that one, the defined benefit guaranteed an income for life, the defined contribution requires that the person makes decisions about the money that had been accumulated in those accounts um, in terms of how to draw down the money to make sure that they have enough and that currently and that also it lasts. Okay, Raina, so I'm trying to sort of I, I'm I'm of the age that that I had a I have a, a pension so I have a a fixed payment that comes to me um, more or less fixed it fluctuates a little bit depending on what the market does um, from the uh, from the state of Iowa uh, for the rest of my life um, my younger friends who are in the business world have some version or in the private sector or whatever have some version of the 401k where you have to manage and and then it seems to me there's a third group who have neither of those things who who worked exactly. in entry level jobs or or worked at small businesses where those kinds of things weren't readily available. Um, so how do we deal with these discrepancies that seem to be true? Because it seems to me there are two different problems here. One problem comes from the folks who are working 401ks who. Are, are sort of incentivized or, or feared into not withdrawing as much money as they would like for fear of living too long and running out of cash. And these other folks who never got a chance to put into the system in the first place and for whom Social Security provides a floor, but it doesn't really provide anything close to a, to a, a living wage that you could retire on and and go you know follow the american dream and do whatever you're wanting to do so how as a safety net how do we manage those two sets of issues i mean that's a really great question and policy wise we can talk about ideal policy solutions right and then we can talk about politically feasible policy solutions um, and so also, I just have to open the parentheses here and say that we are nonpartisan um, and we cannot lobby or we cannot argue in favor of any particular policy. Um, but I would like to give some examples depending on sort of the lens that we are using. Um, and so if we are looking at ideal policy solutions, um, and we really would like to focus on strengthening the safety net. Um, an ideal policy solution would be to, A, strengthen Social Security, which means um, there are several channels through which Social Security can be built up. Um, and, and there's some innovative proposals as well of how to add retirement savings to the people at the bottom who are demonstrated that do not have sufficient retirement savings, mostly because of access, but also, um, you know, because of um, the amount of money that they're earning. So make the formula even a little bit more progressive of that's replacing their income from their working years, give caregiver credit to women, typically, again, 
a majority of the caregivers are women, not not only, so both to women and men, but this would particularly impact the gender gap um, also in, in retirement savings. Um, so those are some ideal solutions. Senator Harkin, before he um, retired from the Senate, he also had a proposal for a national retirement savings account. Um, he called this the USA Fund, uh, which would be an automatic enrollment uh, in, in a, a retirement savings program where the employer contributes a set percentage and the employee contributes um, a set percentage. And the why this is an ideal solution relative to what we have is that it is absolutely portable, right? Being national, you can take it from an employer to the next one from you know, um, let's say Iowa to Illinois, wherever you move with your job. Um, So these are really great policy solutions. Unfortunately, they're not as politically feasible. So some other policies that have been passed, like Secure 2.0, are working on the edges of these problems and um, trying to solve some of these issues a lot more incrementally. So, um, as I said, increasing um, or decreasing, I'm sorry, the wait period for part-time employees to be eligible. Um, There is a care, um, there is a contributor credit for for retirement savings to um, lower income people that is now refundable and will be automatically deposited in um, an IRA account. So it's actually a direct match to retirement savings um, because the savers credit, unfortunately, was not utilized as much uh, at the lower end because people didn't have a federal tax obligation. So now that it is refundable, it's going to add to that. Even if you're saving $1,000, $2,000 a year, you get 50% of that match. That's something, but again, I would put these in politically feasible, but not as large impact as some of the ideal situation, as some of the ideal policy recommendations that I can think of. Um, last one, the states are implementing a version of Senator Harkin's proposal at the state level. So they're creating these um, auto IRAs. Um, that any small employer, small business employer, can enroll their employees at no cost. They just have to add this as a payroll option for their employees. So it only, unfortunately, allows contribution to this account from the employee. Um, and, and so to really to get to the bottom of this, we need to get to the access issue, we need to get to the gaps, right, as you're changing jobs, the accumulation of years of gaps of coverage. But we also need to get to the issue of multiple accounts, because people change on average during their lifetime seven to eight jobs. So that's seven to eight different accounts in this defined contribution system. Um, To me, That is based on sort of our concern with disadvantaged groups and the safety net. 
that is priority number one. But priority number two, the one where we are trying to help people who have money accumulated is also very important, right? Because we want to make sure that in that last part of their life, that's still part of retirement security, yes, they were lucky. Yes, they they were fortunate and had employer uh, contributions and have good balances there. But now they're struggling how to make the best decisions so that the money would last. Okay. Um, and again, in this space, there, there are some proposals. Some of them are politically feasible and others are not so much. <laughs> All right. Brett. So one of the ideas I've heard tossed around is states allowing um, citizens to buy into their state uh, pension plan. Uh, do you know of any states that have actually attempted this, or is this just an idea that's floating around out there and uh, hasn't really gone anywhere because it's not politically feasible? I am not aware of any particular legislation that is focused on people being allowed, who are not state employees, right? Being allowed mm -hmm. to buy into the state plan. What 14 states have passed legislation for is a standalone state retirement savings program for private employers where these private employers just need to register with the state their employees and the state will be withholding um, contributions to an automatic IRA, uh, which is one of the coverage options that I discussed, how we can improve coverage. These are in place, um, legislation has passed in 14 states, but they're actively um, running and accumulating assets in California, uh, Oregon, and Illinois, and just started in a couple of other states in Maryland and um New Jersey, I think, is one of the other states that started enrollment. So what's typical for those accounts that we know at this time with just some few states is their small accounts, but they're actually very effective considering the income level that is covered at getting people to contribute 3 to 5%. They actually start at 5% and then slowly automatically increase contribution depending on the statute, either to 8% or 10%. I don't think any of the states has necessarily started auto escalation of the contributions, but um, they're small accounts, uh, but there is about 70% participation in, in, uh, in terms of um, employees who are opted in. They have the option to opt out, so 30% opt out, 70% choose to stay in those programs. So again, it's very early, but there are something. There are a, a retirement savings vehicle. Absent, you know, our higher level policy choices um, that possibly are not politically feasible. All right. Um, so 
this will probably be the, the the last question for the the radio portion of the show. Um, we have uh, a number of years ago we had uh, Anu Partinen, who is uh, a journalist from Finland, who was talking about the Scandinavian social safety net. And there they do a lot of things like um, elder care is provided completely by the state. Um, they have a number of things like that. Have you, you know, how feasible is it, you know, because that strikes me as a, we know it works because they can do it, uh, but we've never tried it here. Um, is that politically unfeasible to come up with some sort of a, a method of, of simply creating a, a a higher floor with with more levels to it than what Social Security seems to or, or Medicaid uh, Medicare seems to offer. Um, yeah, and I'm also originally from Europe, although um, the country where I'm from originally Bulgaria doesn't have the kind of generous safety net that the northern European countries have. Um, but even in Bulgaria, um, you know, we obviously have uh, national health insurance. Um, our social security sort of equivalent, right, retirement uh, pension, I think is more equivalent to the U.S. social security system than any of the northern European countries, unfortunately. Um, and so um, politically feasible, I would say it, it is very difficult to have conversations about these benefits um, without talking about also intergenerational effects, right? So, so even if this, if a specific policy, whether it's long-term care coverage or anything else that we would like to add on to our social safety net, um, you know, would come with some sort of contribution, um, and it would be tied to current employees. <clears throat> we, in, in the comprehensive view of this, this would either be covered <clears throat> through this kind of solidarity contribution, which is common in Europe, or we would have to ask individual families to cover the cost. <clears throat> and that's where the disparities in, in the abilities of the families really show up and, and it becomes um, a problem. So I think in terms of political feasibility, these are very difficult discussions because we fell short of um, health care reform that was not at all as ambitious as anything <laughs> that they have available in Europe. Right. Um, and, and that's a much more perceived need that something, than something like long-term care, for example, which actually is going to grow given our growing life expectancies. It's going to grow in importance in the coming years, but it's just not as salient as healthcare was, right? And, and insurance, and, and still, it was very difficult to get to a more generous package for health insurance um, than anything, anything comparable to to these northern European countries. All right. Well. On that happy note, when we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 519th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme, theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme. It was written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Reina Stochiva, Director of Retirement Security Policy at the Harkin Institute for Public Policy and Citizen Engagement. We've been talking about the social safety net. The history buff for today was Brett Menard. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners the great Pasutu proverb, Hotza Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm-hmm.